You ready? You feeling fit? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did some stretches. Happy New Year, Dave. Yeah, Happy New Year. Yeah. Do you, do you feel uh, you're older? I feel very much like I did last year, uh, but now with a renewed sense of, of hope and promise. Yeah? Yeah. Things, yeah. things are going to be different this year. I can feel it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. How about you? Um, outside of the wicked snowstorm, which has let up um, for a little bit, um, I'm doing great. Is, it, is the snowstorm um, got- wicked because it went to Boston? Um, yeah, it, it went past Ohio, and we got a couple inches here. And uh, I guess, I, like, like Boston's getting stomped, and and we get to fly into it. Yeah, right? that's right. That's right. On Sunday this, this weekend. Yeah. yeah, that'll be fun. Why not? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, um, I'm. Re- I only just now realized that you've mentioned it that I have to actually pull clothes out of storage to deal with the uh, cold weather. Um, yeah, that's hmm. You're lucky. You're. I envy you. Um, <laughs> Sweet summer child. <laughs> yeah, I don't have that problem. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, what else? What else has been going on? Uh, we haven't talked in like two weeks almost. It's. It feels like last year. This last time <laughs> right. we talked. Um, yeah. So I we got good news uh, about Lauren. Oh, really? Um, Great. Yeah. Yeah. So we got notification that she has. Uh, um, won the National Center for Women and Information Technology Aspirations in Computing 2014 Ohio Affiliate Award. Wow, good for her. That's... Yeah, try saying that ten times. Fast, but, yeah. <laughs> that is a mouthful. But how, how did she come by this award? Did they, um, is the National Center for Women and Information Technology Aspirations in Computing a fan of the David Gunner Show? Uh, no, um, my wife is always looking around for, you know, ways to get, uh, you know, Lauren involved in computing things and, um, uh, you know, like she signed her up for that, uh, Pi Ohio event. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, she's always looking for stuff like that. And, uh, one of the, this, uh, this particular organization, um, is always looking for, um, people that are good role models for, um, you know, girls that are good role models for information technology. So, um, you know, and so it was uh, a, a chance for her to apply to say, well, hey, this is what I'm working on and talked about the work she's done with Scratch and the lugs and all that. And uh, um, she wound up, uh, wound up winning uh, for the Ohio uh, affiliate. That's so cool. Good for her. You know, Dave, yeah. we ought to have her on the show. That's a great idea. We ought to do that sometime. Yeah, maybe we should do it about two weeks ago. Yeah, and have it have the launch coincide with uh, the uh, Youth and Open Source Week with OpenSource.com in January. Oh, that's a tremendous idea. When is it? That's the 13th, right? Well, oh, it was nice. I had uh, There's a blog post I've been sitting on for a while, just launched that uh, right around the new year, and got some nice pickup, uh, which is great. It's called uh, Platform as a Service and the Three Cruelties of Federal IT. Um, it was kind of it was fun to write, um, and it kind of talks about how platform as a service can help with some of the problems endemic to federal IT kind of acquisition, procurement, things like that. It was, if you're into that kind of thing, uh, it was kind of fun to write. Um, and I used my holiday time. I had a 
wonderful Christmas and a, and a, and a really fun new year. Um, and that meant a lot of leisure time, uh, which I've been filling with yes. two things. The first is game of Thrones with which I am now obsessed. Mm. And, uh, okay. and also a game, which apparently everyone else knew about and not me, uh, plague Inc. Have you, have you, no. Let me try this. What, what kind of game is it's that? It's super fun. So especially if you're if you're as enthralled by apocalypse stories as I am. Um, so mm-hmm. the premise of the game is uh, there's a virus that has infected mm-hmm. the world, and using uh, you accumulate um, infected as you accumulate more infected, you uh, get the, what they call DNA points, which you can then allocate to the disease uh, to uh, change its methods of transmission or its symptoms or, um, its defenses. Uh, and what's great is that you are actually playing the disease itself. You are not trying to combat the disease. You are the disease trying to, uh, trying to, uh, destroy the human race. Super fun. Uh, it's really, it's, it's got just as much, it has just the right amount of strategy in it. Um, it's not too awfully demanding. It, it kind of hits that sweet spot right about where civilization usually lives for me in terms of brain activity. So, um, yeah, mm, it was okay. great. It's a, it's super fun. So, so it's, it's sort of like a dystopian version of risk. Uh, no, or? that's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah. They ought to put that on the package. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So is it, is it a video game or a board game or, Oh, it is a, is um, a game you can, you dress up and, <laughs> That's right. It's live action, which is awkward. Yeah. Uh, but no. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, you can install it on uh, your Android telephone. Um, presumably there's mm-hmm. also an iPhone version. Uh, but uh, yeah, you just play it on your phone. It's a, it's a very nice way to kill time. I'm really enjoying it. Oh. Yeah. That's cool. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so this episode, Dave, we're dedicating to Mr. Peter Larson, our, uh, our friend and right. coworker, um, who yep. told us that. Uh, the titles for each of the episodes should be more clear about the uh, about the topics that we're discussing, right? So in the last episode we had with Dan Walsh, uh, the title, I think, was Crimes Against Humanity. Um, and in yes. fact, the subject was Red Hat Enterprise Linux 7. So this is confusing to Peter, and for good reason. Um, so we heard you, Peter, and uh, thanks for the feedback. Uh, the title of this episode is Penchant for Hyperbole. And, uh, right. and hopefully that'll... That'll be a good descriptor of that. That, that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, and if if so, when uh, Peter is really disappointed mm-hmm. and he goes to file a complaint, where where would he go to file his complaint? Peter can go to uh, uh, the Dave and Gunner Show uh, website, which is available at uh, dgshow.org. Uh, that's D as in Dave, G as in Gunner Show.org, um, where you will find our topics, uh, which includes. Let's see. Uh, watching your email. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, we got a theme here. Okay, yeah. so uh, you can go to the Dave and Gunner Show website, uh, org, um, and there you can find a list of links uh, to all the things we're going to be talking about today. Uh, and there's a theme for the, for the abstract today, Dave. See, see if mm-hmm. you can figure out what it is. Uh, we're okay. going to be watching your email, uh, hearing your mm-hmm. GPG key, uh, the smell of fresh mm-hmm. bait OpenStack, uh, a taste of arm mm-hmm. on Fedora and a touch of Skynet. Hmm. So this is all all about hyperbole. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. It's a, a hyperbolic show. Um, and what's on the cutting room floor? So let's see. We got a uh, North Korean uh, press release generator, um, which is hilarious. Uh, that's really uh, good. Oh, it, it's going to save me so much. Time. <laughs> um, 
So when you go to like denounce people, instead of you having to type it up, it's it, you can be done in minutes. Um, it's very nice. Um, we're also going to um, have an article explaining why eggs are egg-shaped. Um, and then uh, also why the uh, Lumina Windows tablet advertisements advertisements are even worse than the product itself. And they truly are. Those ads are Those are horrible. Horrible. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I am extremely happy with my Nexus Five, Dave. Um, I don't know. Are, are you still Are you still enjoying yours? Yes, yes, yes. I am. Um, I'm learning more every day mm-hmm. about it. Um, so the as as we found out since last time that the the, uh, the long press. It, so if you remember before, I was I was saying that oh well, you know, I want to be able to press the button on that on the earbuds and then have it hang the phone up. Where what it wound up doing was muting the microphone. But if you do a long press. Mm-hmm. Um, it will indeed hang the phone up. Um, yeah, but there's still no way for me to get an, any sort of visual notification of whether I'm on mute or not. And um, still working on. Uh, I haven't. I haven't tried that Tasker app uh, to see if I could do uh, LEDs. But that would be like the killer mm-hmm. thing um, to be able to have the, the LED just uh, just have a little red light to tell me that the mic is muted. I would love that. Cool. Um, but in the meantime. Um, I got a uh, Roku 3. Like, what, what do you use to uh, do all your television streaming? Um, we use laptops mostly. Um, but I've, I've, instead of a television, I've got a projector in the living room. And that's hooked up mm, to okay. a tiny black box um, that was designed in California and made in China, if you know what I mean. Right, right. Oh, I get it. It starts with letter mm-hmm. I. It does, yep. Uh, but I, but I, yeah. my my mother is actually a fan of the Roku, um, and uh, so how, how how do you find it? Yeah, so I've I'm I've been a huge Roku fan, and I uh, just recently, for the heck of it, updated to uh, the Roku three, which is their their latest mm-hmm. one. And um, if what you're able to do is get the Android app for Roku, pair that with the device, and then what you can do is like I could be on my Nexus seven or my Nexus five. And be inside of, uh, I could watch um, videos on my tablet, um, or I could, uh, well, so whether it's YouTube or Netflix, I could be watching videos there, or I just push a button, and then um, the tablet will tell the Roku to switch over to the YouTube app or the Netflix app and start playing that video, um, and then it'll pull it back. So it's, it's really cool. Oh, that is cool. Um, yeah, so it's, it's like uh, I was... Uh, sitting on the couch with uh, Lauren last night, and uh, I was just going through a whole bunch of um, Monty Python YouTube videos, and just one after another, just uh, annoying her with them. And it, was, <laughs> it was wonderful. Um, so that, that was really cool. Um, the, other, the other thing I've been doing is I've been um, clearing my backlog of uh, YouTube videos. That, you know, it's like I've, I've marked them to, to view later um, forever. And... Um, with the Roku 3, it, you could actually, there's a YouTube channel for it, so I could watch YouTube videos there and control them from my phone if I want. Um, but I, and I could pause it, play it, all that, uh, pick a different video. Um, but one of the other things that I've been doing over just the slow work day yesterday and today was uh, catch up on some work videos, uh, YouTube videos that I wanted to catch up on. And um, one of the things that I've been really doing a lot of is switching over to the HTML5 player. Um, and playing the the presentations at two x um so like I, I know you and I are big fans of 
listening to podcasts like this one at 2x or 1.5x or whatever you, you can handle. Um, but doing the, the presentations that way is great for me because it forces – not only do I get done in half the time, but it forces me to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's – my attention is less likely to drift um, if, if it's a little bit more fast-paced. So it's highly recommended. Oh, that's great. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah. And then um, let's see. I saw that uh, there's just today Pandora got uh, for Android. They are updated their app um, to be a uh, an alarm clock. Um, so think uh, clock radio um, if if you need skeuomorphism. I guess. <laughs> um, but um, but the one you know to me I thought wow that's that's really cool. I could set the alarm to turn on to match my particular you know to start Pandora instead of like some annoying beep or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that worries me, though, is that it says that you need to have a Wi-Fi connection um, or a cell connection in order for it to start playing the song. And for me, it's like I worry that it's like you're in a hotel room where, you know, the, you know, what if your Wi-Fi session times out um, in the middle of the night and it can't get oh, to the right. Internet to yep. pull down a song yep. and then it doesn't wake you yep. up? Yep. Um, yeah, you would think that it's like, oh, if I had the alarm set, it could like pre-cache like at least one song to get you to to get you woke up or something. Right, right, you know? right, right. Huh. Yeah. That is a problem that now seems obvious, but it would not have occurred to me if you hadn't mentioned it. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. And to me, I'm I'm pretty particular about alarm clocks cuz it's like I you know, like for me it's like when I have that 6:30 a.m. flight out of Canton Akron, and I set my alarm for like 4:10. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not only am I setting the alarm on my phone, but also on the clock radio uh, next to my right. bed, because um, it's like I, it's like if I if I miss that flight, I'm just screwed. So, um, pretty pretty particular about this. Nice. Um, are you, have you started using Google Now very much? I use it all the time. Yeah, I, I use it a lot. Um, and and um, there's one thing I saw that there was a uh, life hacker. Um, I, I, there's an article that has an infographic where it shows like 60 uh, Google Now commands, including a whole bunch of uh, um, Easter eggs from like Star Trek and I think Doctor Who and <laughs> stuff like that. So Lauren was really happy. nice. Nice. Okay. Cool. Yeah, we'll put a link to that to that in the show notes because um, it is hard to remember all the Google Now stuff you you can do. Uh, yeah. 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 Cool. Well, and it's getting more conversational too. So you don't necessarily need to remember, um, you know. It's like you, you know, it. You don't have to remember the entire sequence syntax. Yeah, of can, yeah you can just yeah. do like send a text message. Who do you want to send it to, Dave? What do you want to say? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I like that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, let's see. You got some vestibular ocular reflex news here. Yeah, of course. Um, so remember how we were talking about uh, with chickens with their vestibular ocular reflexes, mm-hmm. and then Mercedes Benz did a uh, commercial yeah. of of uh, showing that their cars handle like a mm-hmm. chicken. Um, so now Jaguar has a commercial making fun of the Mercedes uh, the Mercedes Benz commercial. So <laughs> <laughs> saying you know it's which is great. I mean, to me, it's like you're Mercedes and you want to say your car handles like a chicken, whether it does or not. You don't. You know, it's like you don't say that out loud, and and so uh, Jaguar like pounced all over that, like um, Jaguar, uh, exactly, <laughs> and and they they totally ridiculed it, which is a, a pretty good uh, um, 
So you can imagine a, a jaguar next to a chicken. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll let you go to the link and check out the video. <laughs> nice. I imagine that I imagine that advertisement prompted a lot of clucking from the uh, Mercedes-Benz folks. So uh, this uh, acoustic cryptanalysis attack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a Snowden, wasn't it? Um, I don't know. Don't, I don't know where it came okay, from. Me, I, sorry, I, me, I think the story was more of, um, you know, the, the funny thing here was more about the, the articles I seen. I didn't see any, I don't remember seeing anything with references to Snowden. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, but it was more about the attack, um, that, that what I remember. Right, right. Uh, I mean, it, it, this is like last year's news too. Yeah. So. Yeah. So the, so the premise is you can, with, uh, like a garden variety microphone, like a microphone in a cell phone, you can set it down next to a computer and under the right circumstances, um, that microphone by listening to the activity of your computer can extract the decryption keys from the, from your machine, mm-hmm. which is crazy town. That's like, uh, yes. like a, so I immediately thought of, remember when Tempest was a, was a big deal? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that, that was for, um, RF. Yeah. That was for the, yeah. That yeah was so for... people, people could see your screen and mm-hmm. stuff. And I, I've been in Tempest, uh, chambers before. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but this is, uh, this of course reminded us of the bad bios attack that we've been talking about the last few, uh, the last few episodes. Um, and we did a little poking around and, uh, tried to figure out whether rel was vulnerable to this attack. Um, and so some mm-hmm. good news, right? Um, we've got, mm-hmm. uh, uh, there is, so first of all, it is, it only affects GPG one, not GPG two. Um, and just about everybody mm-hmm. should be using GPG two anyway. Um, but if you're using mm-hmm. GPG one, um, there is a vulnerability, um, in that. And we actually have, we'll include the link to the bug in the, in the CV notes, um, in the, uh, in the show notes. Uh, but, mm-hmm. uh, but basically like pretty low risk. Um, yes. Yeah. Pretty low risk. Not a, not a big, not a big deal. Yeah. And I, you know, this goes, this just reminds me of that was, is it next KCD cartoon that talks about, you know, it's like what a computer hacker thinks. And he's like thinking about this really elaborate attack. And, <laughs> and then the reality is that the spy agency is just going to hit you over the head with a wrench until you tell them. Your <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, but it is, it is still an interesting attack and like super fun to talk about, even though as a practical matter, it's probably not really useful unless you are, you know, an agent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Now, in, uh, oh, also in Panopticon news, uh, mm-hmm. so Gmail just destroyed email marketing. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, no, they've redirected it, <laughs> right? Right, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is what happens when you let one mail provider control almost everyone's consumption of email, right? Um, And Mm -hmm. so when a company like Red Hat sends a message out to its customers, we want to know when, how many people opened it, right? We want to know how, how many Mm -hmm. people read it. And the way you do that is with a bug, right? It's a little, usually like a, either your logo or it's like a, like one pixel, uh, image that just kind of hides on the on the web page, and when your email reader loads that with little one pixel image, it knows that it's a little beacon, right? That goes back and tells us that oh yeah, this guy opened the email, right? Pretty reliable, and people have been using this method for years uh, to know how effective their email uh, marketing is. Um, mm-hmm. Google <clears throat> just broke it <laughs> by um, instead of 
if you're in Gmail in the web browser, um, instead of going to the advertisers page, um, Google has mm-hmm. already fetched the image on your behalf and it is sitting on Google servers. So you're actually getting the image from Google and not from say Red Hat, uh, meaning that Red mm-hmm. Hat is now blind to the number of people who have opened up their email. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought, you know, at first people were like, the first reaction was, oh my gosh, they are turning off selective image viewing, mm-hmm. I guess by default. Mm-hmm. Right. So you get to see all the images. But in my case, I'm always like trying to view the images because the, the, the HTML based email just looks like a mess anyhow without the images. Right. So it's like, whatever, I don't care. Right. Um, but and then it sounded like, oh, well, this is actually a good privacy thing because then it's like instead of um, uh, all these advertisers knowing what I'm looking at, Google knows. Well, I mean, they're going to know anyway whether I open the email or not. Mm-hmm. But um, but it is pretty interesting that they've sort of blinded um, them. And, and do you think they did it out of the goodness of their hearts from or from a security standpoint with malicious images? Um, I think that's another benefit. Yeah, that's right. They yeah. can't have that, but uh, but I'm sure that there's also that all positive side effect of of uh, you know them controlling what um, you know what the email marketers can or can't see. Um, right. I get it, it. It makes things more secure for the reasons that you mentioned. It certainly makes them more private. Um, but it also it, it basically Google is conducting a man in the middle attack. Right. That's another way to tell the story is that yes, um, true. I have opted in to sign up for these emails from this company. And now Google's decided to quote unquote, not unquote unquote. I mean, they're literally caching the images on their local servers. Maybe that improves the image delivery. Um, but it certainly does interfere with the email marketers intended. It interferes with their intent. Um, right. So I don't know. I, I'm very conflicted, and and mostly I'm just confused by why Google would do it. It doesn't seem like you know was this really such a pernicious privacy problem? I mean, we've been doing it for years. Everyone's more or less accustomed to it, and if you don't like it, then you just turn off the images. Um, and they do give you the option of turning it, of disabling this this caching mechanism, so you can go into your preferences mm-hmm. and, and fix it. But it just seems it, seem, it seems so weirdly disruptive for a relatively small benefit. I, I just feel yeah. like I don't completely understand all the decision. I don't. I don't completely understand why they came to the to that decision to act. It seems weird. Yeah, and well, and I think another benefit that we haven't talked mm-hmm. about is it. Uh, and I don't know how, you know, how what the priority is. But um, if you have the, if you a marketer sends some gigantic image, uh, Google could potentially resize that image or make it a little bit more consumable for say like mobile phone use. So it doesn't clog up your, um, eat up your, uh, data usage cap, um, you know, eat into that. Um, but again, like you said, that's pretty much a man in the middle attack where, you know, somebody, you know, you're not, you're seeing the image that Google is giving you, not necessarily the image the marketer wanted to show you. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah, well, and also that relieves, if that's the case, now we're getting way down the rat hole, but like if Google is now optimizing the emails for mobile on behalf of the marketers, then that is what now, that's Google's job now is to create like responsive mm-hmm. emails for web page. I mean, it just seems like that should be the responsibility of the marketer to make sure that their their content is formatted properly depending on your form factor um, and yeah. not Google. I don't know, it's, it's very strange. 
I don't know. It's kind of, it's, yeah. it's confusing. It's just confusing. And I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's just confusing. Let's talk about something else. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm befuddled. Yeah. Let's talk about something cheery instead. Um, yeah. 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 So, so did you know that your phone logs everywhere you go? I did. And I'm so glad it does. I'm yeah. so glad it does. So, so you know where you've been and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. so it, what people need to do now is, is pause the podcast and check out the link in the show notes. Um, have you, have you tried the, that link, um, where, where you could see your phone history, your tracking history? Yes. And I know it shocked and appalled a number of people. However, it did not shock and appall me because I, when I was given the option, I actually turned that on. Mm. Um, so when Google Latitude was still operational, um, I used Google Latitude all the time to keep track of, you know, how many miles I've been traveling, um, what stores I had been to, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, found, I actually found it fun to, you know, kind of keep track of, you know, if I was at a mall, which stores I went into, um, where I bought a particular thing, um, you know, how much time was I spending in the car, how much time I was spending on foot. I got a lot of value out of them collecting all that data about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, if I wasn't able to get that data, I probably would have turned it off. And in fact, when they shut down Google Latitude, um, I actually turned off the the location the location based stuff on my phone. So, um, but I know a lot of people who didn't realize that that all that data collection was even happening when they visit that link, they, they freaked out. Yeah, and and what, to me, when I looked at it, I was horrified by how much data and how often mm-hmm. it was getting the data. It wasn't like where I was yesterday. It was mm-hmm. like, where was I at ten o'clock a.m. yesterday? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and there's a scroll bar where I could scroll through, and I could actually see this little dot of me moving around on the map, um, which was just mm-hmm. amazing. Yep. Um, and it, and the other part of it is that it's not it's where my Gmail account was, not necessarily where my phone was, and mm-hmm. and so the interesting part was that I would travel like i would go across town and leave my tablet at home and so there would be like it it would get all confused where there would be like a dot where my house is and then there would be like a dot of me on the other side of akron there would be these dots all over the place it would get all confused um because it wants me you know but i i think but there's also the option to you know i could blow away the history i could also um i could also uh you know, blow away the history for a particular day. Um, but I, to me, it's kind of scary from a, I guess, a panopticon sort of standpoint of um, if, you know, what if, uh, you know, it could, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, there was uh, the Boston bombing or whatever, um, you know, and I, uh, we want to get a list of, uh, you know, you could, you could subpoena Google and get the, uh, the, the information for all the Google users that were in a particular latitude and longitude, you know, the you know, square mile radius around that explosion. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's, you know, it's, you know, suspects or even witnesses, you know, and it's, it's just like crazy. Well, um, and this is the, well, this is the metadata thing, right? Yeah. And my understanding is that if they want to collect location data for phones that were in a particular area at a particular time, I think the the barrier for that is very very low. Um, mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't even think they need a court order for that. I think they just need to ask nicely, and the mm-hmm. and the phone company will give it to them. Um, which actually folds back on a point that we've made before: is that the the rules around this stuff are so 
strange and kind of so carefully parsed that uh, the fact that you and I, who are relatively intelligent guys uh, with a relatively good understanding of how the government works and the roles and functions of a government and citizen, have no idea whether <laughs> the, the whether law enforcement needs a court order to get our location data off our phone. Um, why don't we know that? Why isn't that more easily understood? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not for lack of trying. I just know that the the rules are so. Um, again, carefully parsed, mm-hmm. uh, that it's difficult for the lay person to understand unless you're like, you know, specialized in surveillance or specialized in privacy law. Right. Well, yeah. And I think too, like, what about the, like the average criminal? Um, mm-hmm. you would think, and I don't want to, you know, I, I, I don't want to say law enforcement is now easy, but I, I could imagine that the law enforcement's job is a lot easier if they had access to this data. So it's like, oh, well, somebody, you know, held up this liquor store at this particular time. Well, probably the guy had his phone with him, right, when mm-hmm. he went to rob it. So it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe I can get that location data for that um, mm-hmm. to be able to track the person down. And I'm sure the typical person that holds up a liquor store doesn't um, know about, you know, the history or things like that where, you know, you see people posting stuff on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, you know, just wide open of, you know, things that they probably shouldn't be posting even publicly. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they don't even understand their, their own privacy settings, let alone the data that's being collected that they, um, you know, that they may or, you know, you explain it to them and they still wouldn't understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's right. That's right. The world is confusing and complicated, Dave. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, at least uh, my only my only comfort in this confusing world that we live in is sitting down with a nice ebook. Right. Yeah. You could just just... escape. Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. Yep. Yeah. But, but I mean, it could, if you're reading the, an ebook Mm -hmm. on your Nexus tablet, it Mm -hmm. knows where you're reading it. Right. Ah, yes, it certainly does. Okay. Yeah. And that, and that's it though. No, I think I think it knows significantly more than that. You found this article at uh, at the New York Times, right? Yeah, let's let's just let's go let's go another uh, more uh, another rotation down this descent of, of uh, <laughs> <laughs> surveillance state madness. Um, this this episode is a real wrist litter. This is <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um so now ebooks are reading you um and and so. <laughs> So this is just, yeah, uh, wow, this is great. Um, so the big thing here is, uh, so it's a New York Times article where, you know, for, you know, people on web pages and all that, they know, you know, where your mouse is and, you know, what you're clicking on and can track all that information. And now um, there are companies that are getting this data from your habits of reading ebooks as well. So, um, you know, it's it's more than just, looking at web pages, uh, you know, these companies can see, you know, not only what books you're reading, but whether you finish books and what sections you read over and over again. Um, and so, you know, they, they talked about, uh, um, and, and, you know, the way that they position it is it, um, that they're, you know, Oh, we're pretty open about sharing this data so people could use it to publish better books. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, but you know some of the interesting factoids that they talked about is that uh, 
the longer a mystery novel is, the more likely readers are to jump to the end to see who did it. Um, <laughs> and then uh, more people are more people are more likely to finish biographies than business titles. Um, mm-hmm. And then a chapter of a yoga book is all they need. Um, mm-hmm. And then they speed through romance novels faster than religious titles. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, all kind of interesting things like that. And um, other things like um, uh, one, of the, one of the places said that they're 25% more likely to finish books that are broken up into shorter chapters, um, which makes sense, right? Because, like, to me, I like shorter chapters. So, you know, if you're reading and, you know, on something on a phone or, um, you know, or you're sort of mobile and, you know, waiting at a doctor's office or something, you probably don't want to have like a super long chapter. You want to be able to finish a thought pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, it's a, yeah. I mean, the, so what's, what's really interesting about this is, I mean, it sounds, I guess, a little bit creepy, but I, I presume that the data is mostly anonymized. Um, it would be nice to know for sure. But the um, the fact that the publishing industry has been so starved of information about what is successful and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and also about reading habits. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the success rate for a publisher, um, putting out a you know given work of fiction or whatever, um, if you look at the success rate, it's pretty miserable, right? Like Dan Brown keeps a whole publishing house afloat, right? right. And, uh, and then, like having one hit allows you to have, you know, an entire roster of disasters um, for you know for a given year, um, and that kind of heavily subsidized um, publishing behavior, um, which is not so dissimilar from how movies are, I guess, um, is a natural consequence of publishers basically having no idea what's going to be successful and what isn't. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they have relatively crude tools like celebrity author, um, or previously successful novel will now have a sequel. Okay. That sequel is probably going to do okay. You know, things like that. Um, and I wonder if having this, additional usage data is going to improve the quality of books over time. Yes. And as a, as a, as a, well, I wonder if it's going to improve things over time as a first step. And then the second step is of course going too far in the other direction where it stops being about making intelligent decisions about stories and starts and starts being a lot more like say Netflix, right. Which is constructing whole movies and TV shows based on people's, uh, based on people's, you know, patterns of behavior. Right. Um, Right. Yeah, so it becomes like highly tailored, uh, which seems, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. It's frankly, it's surprising that they haven't done this earlier. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, well, it looks like Barnes and Noble and Amazon have been doing that for a while, um, mm-hmm. but now there are other people that are doing that, and, um, and I wonder from a, maybe it'll go sort of like the music industry, right? Where you know in the past you had these mega groups, um, you know Led Zeppelin and whatnot. Um, that that you know people would bank on and they would have these long multi-album contracts and all that um mm-hmm. where n- n- nowadays people have gone away from that and it's almost the one hit wonder where it is kind of like that crapshoot and it's also you know it's it's more cost effective to have a, a whole lot of you know potential one hit wonders than to pay Mick Jagger millions of dollars um mm-hmm. So I'm, I wonder if it could go that way too. Once they can extract those things that, that people like to come up with that hit book, hit book or whatever, um, right? Yeah, and and it becomes a. It's interesting because the large houses are the ones that are going to be able to afford sophisticated analysis of this data, right? Your yeah. your your homebrew self published dude in his in his garage is not going to have access 
to the kind of data that Random House is, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so Random House is now going to be in a much better position to make intelligent bets on which books are going to be successful and which ones aren't. Yes. Um, huh. I wonder, so I wonder if this is going to save publishing. Yeah. I doubt it, but maybe it is. <laughs> totally unrelated uh, factoid. Um, I don't know if you noticed that uh, that uh, the Google Playbooks app, um, they have an update that allows you to update your upload your own PDF and uh, EPUB files right from your device. No kidding. I'm sure. Is that t- total altruism, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I'm now fascinated. So this, is, this, is, this has been a long-running problem for me. Is I don't, Maybe you can tell me, Dave, how you do this. Um, we have to read PDFs all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's manuals or mm. documentation or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, for articles on the web, I can use Pocket, right? Which I mm-hmm. use to save stuff for reading later. Um, for audio files, we got my podcasting trick, right? With Dropbox mm-hmm. and yep. DropSync and all that to uh, listen to the audio files later and video too. Uh, I have no good method for storing PDFs to read later I have no, or keeping track of those. Um, I had this, I have this like super hinky thing with like mailing a link to remember the milk and it doesn't work very well at all. I wonder if this would be a nice kind of read it later for PDFs. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. How do you, how do you do that? How do you solve that problem now? Yeah. So lately, well, before, um, I'm still not sure which one I want to use, but, um, I kind of like with the Kindle, how you could be reading on multiple devices and it'll sync across devices to the latest page you're reading, which is kind of cool. Um, and it looks like the new Google Play app can do that as well. The other thing that the Google Play app, um, books app can do is it could also do text to speech so it can read books to you. And, and it's not mm-hmm. bad. Um, it's okay. Um, but what I've done in the past was, you know, I would just use Dropbox and I would have, um, I would use, um, oh, what is it? Um, Caliber and, uh, to be able to manage, the eBooks that I have, and um, and I would store my Caliber directory would be a directory inside a Dropbox, and then whenever um, so whenever I download a book, um, I have like an incoming folder that will store it inside of uh, Dropbox, and then whenever I get around to it and I'm running the Caliber app, I will drop it into the um, uh, into Caliber, and then it will categorize it and everything. It's it's pretty nice, you know. It'll hmm do the cover it'll you know it'll look for the right cover and all that and ISBN number and all that it's pretty pretty nice um and then from my tablet um I can use something like Aldico um to just do I guess like a file open um and then mm-hmm. um or or actually I would go into the Dropbox app select the EPUB or PDF and it would I would launch Aldico and it would just import it to that um and then whenever I'm done with a book I'll just delete it out of Aldico um and then but it's still on Dropbox. But it doesn't synchronize anything. But I, I presume I could I could probably upload it um, to the Google Play Books as well, um, as long as I'm okay having Google track what I'm reading or whatever. Um, but whatever. This is this is why publishing is dead because all the systems that you just described, I have also tried myself, mm-hmm. and the, I can't believe we haven't solved this problem yet. Like it, it seems like. It seems like this should be significantly easier than it is. Um, ah, it's very frustrating. It's very yeah. frustrating. Yeah, yeah. It's you crazy. Could, you would think that you would be able to like, you know, right click on something, send it to 
Google Drive and it just mm-hmm. gets ingested into like a play music sort of thing? Like yeah, what do you right. what do you do for music? Oh, don't get me started. No, that's another yeah, the music is also also a disaster. Um I kind of use Google Music, but they've got a twenty thousand song limit, which to me is just more wow. reprehensible. Um and I don't know, basically I need a robot to come in and solve all this. Um I'm 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 prom- I'm I'm heartened by the folks at Boston Dynamics, right? They're building the that robot dog and the walk-in robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they can develop us a robot that will help us manage our media um, on our mobile devices. What do you think? Yeah, well, Google ought to buy them to do that. Yeah, so they did. Um, yeah. So I remember. Do you remember the first time you saw the video of Big Dog that mm-hmm. that crazy robot mule? Um, the thing is horrifying. It's like yes. right out of the Terminator movies. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, and what's horrifying about it is that it, it's in that uncanny valley, right? It's because it's almost behaving like something biological, but mm-hmm. it is in fact, you know, kind of herky jerky. Um, well, it looks totally like a robot, like out of science fiction. And it doesn't so, have a head and it's got no head, which is also gross. <laughs> right. right. But yeah. So my, my first exposure to Boston dynamics was back even before I worked for SGI, um, was that they did a lot of, uh, was it SAF, Synthetic Automated Forces? Um, so this was back before they even did robotics, where mm-hmm. um, you wanted to do visual simulation and you wanted to have synthetic troops running around in your environment. So whether they're friendlies or, or foes or whatever, mm-hmm. you could have um, each, you know, you could have these soldiers walk around. It was like pretty creepy. And it was, and nowadays it's pretty much mainstream in the video games that you have now where you can have these synthetic forces that run around and it, you know, you don't need a big SGI system. You could actually, you know, run it on your Xbox or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, um, so that that was uh, um, pretty wild. And um, yeah, so it, the other thing that that, that article talked about was um, uh, that Google's intent on um, it's. Uh, let's see. I'll, to quote the article, the deal is also the clearest indication yet that Google is intent on building a new class of autonomous systems that might do anything from warehouse work to package delivery and even elder care. <laughs> you can hear the needle scratch at the end of that sentence. Like, like warehouse work. Oh, yeah, uh-huh, that makes sense. Robots for warehouse work. That's heavy lifting and stuff. That makes sense. And package delivery. Oh, right, drones and stuff. That makes total sense. And even elder care. What? Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> making the leap from lifting pallets uh, in a warehouse to taking care of my grandmother is crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I can imagine myself in a in this home, and I have all these robots bringing my medicine, and mm-hmm. in this, it has to be like a white room, right, with a mm-hmm. lot of sunlight. Yep. You know, something like um, like the end of Twilight Green. You know, <laughs> yeah. that's right. With the with the big the big film playing and all that, and. Uh-huh. Nice... Or, or or maybe like plugging my brain into some kind of consensual hallucination um, yeah. while the robots feed off the energy of my body. How about right. that? Yeah. Yeah. Brought to you by Google. <laughs> but it gets uh, worse. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, how does it get worse? How does yeah. it? Okay, we've got so, robots feeding on humans. How, how could this? How could this? How well, yeah, let's, let's go one more. Um yeah, so there's um, so it says that uh, another article I saw that the U.S. military may have ten robots per soldier by 2023. That makes sense. That makes sense to me. Because mm-hmm. I mean, think about how many robots that are fielded already, right? Like the Air Force is 
pretty quickly. And in fact, I think their stated strategy is to kind of head towards like automated, automated robots. And certainly if you don't have to put a human in every machine, you mm. can have a lot more machines. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was it. 2023 even seems conservative, doesn't it? Yeah. Especially when you, th especially when you think about like tiny little robots, like little robot missiles, um, little like handheld drones, stuff like that. Right. I mean, you can imagine a soldier carrying around those little like surveillance rollerball robots mm -hmm. and you can like having a pocket full of them. Right. Mm -hmm. In in the not too distant future, yeah. Well, like even, and it doesn't sound that that crazy if you think about, um, like, how many IP addresses do you have right now in your house? Like between, and right. and it's not like you know super nerdy people. It's like you know people with Roku's and cell phones and t computers and DVD players and all that. And it's like, well, and and you combine that with what we talked about with uh, Google Now, where it's almost like a little R two D two sort of you know, sidekick that you have that's your co-pilot. Mm -hmm. um, just, you know, well, it won't be long before you have a, a Google-branded object that's, you know, walking, it's ambulatory, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They should change your name to Cyberdyne Systems. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Or the Tyrell Corporation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Cyberdyne Systems. So, but do you, do you know in those Ridley Scott movies that um, the there is actually a continuity to the company names? No. So you'll actually see um, in what is it in Alien? You will see companies named that also appear in uh, in the Terminator movie. Oh, nice. Right. So there's um, I'm trying to remember if there's some like there are some. Uh, there's like a hyphenated company name that's like one Japanese name and one German name. I forget, I forget what it is. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. Anyway. Okay, please. We've got to move on to some good news. Okay. Yeah, so we'll leave the link for robot, uh, robot anesthesiologist uh, putting patients under for colonosc colonoscopies. Um, we'll leave that as a link for the reader. <laughs> um, yeah, let's, yeah. And 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 folks can't folks can't see this at home, but in the show notes, Dave has written Dave and Gunner DIY joke kit of the week before that link. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so here here is a use of mobile technologies uh, and and mobile computational power that is actually very cool. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, that it's a Swiss uh, university, mm -hmm. if I remember right. Yeah, mm -hmm. in Switzerland. Um, they've actually developed a way to do 3D scans mm -hmm. uh, based on using the camera in your mobile phone. Yeah, I can't wait for that. The, there's going to be, like right now, we're using things like Cam Scanner, right? We're, we're big mm -hmm. fans of that um, yep. to take pictures of receipts and stuff. And then there's also um, like the Google Photos app or the camera app where you could take mm -hmm. like sphere bubbles and panoramic mm -hmm. views. Um, which are pretty cool. And then yep. I, the video is really neat where it's like you take a picture from a bunch of different angles and it can construct a 3D um, scene out of it. So I, I, mm -hmm. I, can, I can believe that there's going to be a Google version of that app, whether it's an app or Google comes up with it or somebody comes up with it. I can imagine within the next year or so there will be like a free app to do that. And then yeah. you could probably send it off to a 3D printer and have an action figure made of you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, right. That's I mean that is going to be the number one use of this is busts. 
right? <laughs> so <laughs> suddenly everyone is going to have a bust of their of themselves and their significant other um, in their homes. That that just seems inevitable. Yeah, that's that's yeah. the first thing I do. <laughs> <laughs> Selfies. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, what are the, what are the news that we got? Uh, do do you have any anything in uh, the Schadenfreude department? Well, we haven't talked about Microsoft all episode, so. Oh, great. Yeah, need perfect. to give them a turn. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 want, I saw this and I wanted to get your opinion on it. But um, mm-hmm. so there's – so Microsoft, um, for years, they did not ship their own virus software, antivirus software. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sure because they didn't want to poison the ISV ecosystem of, of all the virus you know, providers that are out there. Um, sure. And then eventually it's like they, they've succumbed to it and they came out with Microsoft Security Essentials. Um, but there was an article that I saw that um, that even today Microsoft Security Essentials misses 39% of the malware um, detected in a particular test. Um, mm. While other ones got like 87% or higher, um, five of the antivirus companies got 99 to, 98 to 99%. But... Um, but um, what – so Microsoft, they uh, – last year, um, they said – and this is, this is going to get you all wound up. Um, so they said – so they were um, you know, asked about it last year. And um, they said that the security was only intended to offer baseline performance, um, <laughs> saying that it wanted to give customers a good reason to pay for their security products um, because that would create greater diversity in the market – and make life harder for malware writers. Right. Because we've always been at war with East Asia. Right. That's, a, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. That's, that's, uh, you know what? That, that actually reeks of compromise to me, right? You have one side of Microsoft who very rightfully wants to ship uh, a very competent piece of malware, or, uh, uh, anti-malware yeah. uh, software, right? Which is... Which is absolutely something that they should be doing right and i'm sure Um, they i mean as the operating system people are probably so are so tired of getting beat up for um right you know for their security you know Mm -hmm. being known for associated with viruses yeah yeah so so here's my story of how this how this happened um and i'm totally making this up this is total speculation but i have I'm pretty sure this is how this went down. Um, you probably have folks on the OS team or maybe on a security team who are like, we need to ship antivirus software. And so we're going to write this antivirus software. Um, we are going to include it in Windows, right? We're going to include it with the operating system because that's the responsible thing to do and it's going to improve our, our security posture and improve the reputation of the product and things like that. Mm-hmm. That project moves ahead for six to nine months or however long it takes. And then eventually someone on the Microsoft ISV team gets wind of it and says, hey, knock it off. You're mm-hmm. disenfranchising this very rich ecosystem over here of antivirus providers, and they're all going to be really angry with us if we start shipping this thing. And even in the worst case, if, you're real, if you create good software, you're actually going to suck the air out of the room, and now it's going to be Microsoft's job to always solve the, the antivirus problem because we won't have these third parties building, building better tools, right? Mm-hmm. So then what happens? Well, they don't want to not ship the software that they wrote, but they also don't want to break their ISV ecosystem. So they ship a crappy product, mm-hmm. which only solves 61% of the problem and leaves the other 39% to go handle the ISVs and then issues a very confusing 
uh, press release uh, like the one that you just read where uh, they're saying, well, this is only for baseline performance. We want to give customers a good reason to pay for the, pay for the third-party products. Uh, we want a bit more diversity in the marketplace, et cetera, et cetera, trying to explain why this is actually a good idea and not you know, this horribly compromised half measure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, I mean, it makes perfect sense given all of the, given all of the diverse intention involved in, in building something like this, but why not just tell these antivirus vendors to go like, go find something else more interesting to work on. Right. <laughs> right. Um, there's, you know, there's plenty of work to do in the security space and like host-based intrusion detection systems, um, you know, doing, uh, you know, fingerprint analysis on the, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that you could do. Um, and still allow Microsoft to ship antivirus software as part of the Windows OS. Yeah, or, or they could even raise the bar and make mm-hmm. the security, the antivirus people work even harder, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. Alas. And, but Dave, you know, the thing about this is you only get a half measure like this when you are talking about proprietary software. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. It's because only Microsoft gets to decide what goes into that, what goes into that system. And so they they are forced to make decisions like that. Whereas if it was the Linux community, as, as in fact it was in the Linux community, um, if it was a good idea, it would end up in the code base. Right. Right. And shipped with, and, and some distributions could have it enabled and enforcing by default. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Cause this is what happened with SE Linux. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It took a while to convince folks that it was a good idea to include it, but once it was included, you know, then everyone benefited from it, and ISVs had to go figure out, had to go write new software um, to handle uh, to handle different problems because I see Linux had this one problem taken care of, solve yeah. it once, just makes sense. All right, um, events, what's coming up here? Oh, we got we, uh, we got a new meetup starting in DC, right? Yeah, Jason Callaway, um, mm-hmm. solutions architect on the uh, intelligence community team. He's uh, starting an open cloud meetup. Um, nice. So that's in the DC area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we'll include a link to that in the in the show notes. Um, and then uh, I'm going to be doing uh, I'm going to be doing a thing with Dan Youngst uh, from our OpenShift team. Um, we're going to do uh, some some web based presentations. Uh, my New Year's resolution is not to use the word webinar because it's a silly word. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to do these. What if it was a cyber webinar? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, so we're going to be, so we're going to be doing two live shows and one pre-recorded, uh, for Asia. Um, but on January 14th and 15th, um, and the subject is going to be, um, the title is, is it PaaS or something else? Uh, we're basically going to talk about what a platform as a service is and why a platform as a service is different and in many ways better than infrastructure as a service, mm. uh, or creating a bunch of template VMs, stuff like that. So anyway, uh, we'll include a link to that. Uh, everyone should tune in and, uh, let me know how I did, uh, cause we've never done a presentation on this topic before. So, uh, I'm curious what the, curious what the response is going to be. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Uh, let's see what's going on at work, Dave. Yeah. A bunch let's, of stuff. let's talk about something upbeat. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Massachusetts, they are, they're in the news. They're doing the whole open cloud thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was announced actually back in mid-December, um, but we're only just now catching up to it. So state of Massachusetts has pulled academia and industry together, and they're building an OpenStack-based cloud. Red Hat's helping them out with this. Um, so And this OpenStack-based cloud 
uh, is going to be made available to research institutions like MIT, Harvard, UMass, uh, so that they have all the computing power they need. And then on the back end of that transaction, um, a bunch of vendors like Red Hat and you know all the guys on Route 128 um, are going to get together and use that cloud as an opportunity to try out new ideas, do research uh, for ourselves, um, you know, do integration work, reference architectures, stuff like that. So everyone can kind of uh, everyone can kind of share in the playground, uh, which is which is really cool. I think it's a great idea and really nice for Massachusetts. So hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing how that uh, seeing how that evolves. Speaking of OpenStack, we just did another OpenStack release. It seems like we just released OpenStack 3, and now we're releasing OpenStack Platform uh, 4.0, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's moving pretty pretty fast. Um, yeah, yep. so RHEL OpenStack Platform on 4.0 is out. And what are some of the good things that, that you found in there? Yeah, so there's uh, we got so Foreman, if you're a fan of the Foreman lifecycle management uh, dingus, um, you can you can use that because now it's got full support for Foreman. Um, it now supports the Heat API, uh, which folks are pretty excited about. It supports uh, the kind of open virtual networking. Uh, this is the Neutron project, um, so now you can actually manage your uh, what do you call it, like a networking as a service. Or uh, I'm trying not to use the word software defined networking, but there you have it, software defined networking. You should do a webinar on that. And then the Cilometer, uh, which is the kind of metrics collection unit, we're shipping that now. Uh, it now integrates with Red Hat Cloud Forms. Uh, so using the Cloud Forms tool, you can actually manage a Red Hat OpenStack and Red Enterprise Virtualization and Amazon EC2, all from one kind of portfolio, which is very cool. Um, and then we also improved the integration with Red Hat Storage, uh, which is based on the Gluster project. Um, so big release. Um, and I think the releases are going to continue to be big because uh, OpenStack is still moving so fast. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm, I'm really in, excited about the uh, integration of cloud forms because uh, mm-hmm. the, um, you know, Horizon front end to it is, is nice. Um, it's okay, but it's not as rich as what you could do with cloud forms. And when you combine the two together, having that dashboard where, and and not only can you, use cloud forms to see the OpenStack environment, you could look at your existing VMware and Rev and AWS and stuff like that. So um, that's pretty exciting to me. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so in other news, uh, Fedora 20 is out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, been looking forward to this. The ARM, the, big, the, the headline on it, at least for me, is that ARM is now a tier one platform on Fedora 20. Um, yep. So now right alongside x86, if... Fedora doesn't work on on the ARM platform, uh, then it doesn't ship. Basically, is what that means. Yep. Um, and of course, that's a first step towards uh, making it possible for RHEL to run on ARM, mm-hmm. which is very cool. Yeah, Super yeah. Fun. And but the other thing that you know, a lot of times people think that oh, well, okay, now it's support on ARM. I can put it on my Raspberry Pi and all that. Um, and that's still not the case because Raspberry Pi is. Um, what thirty-two bit and ARM seven yeah. based and all that, but mm-hmm. if you have like a Beagle Bone Black, um, it should work. Um, and mm-hmm. there, there's a whole list of uh, of uh, little itty bitty ARM based boards that uh, you could you could try it out on. Yep, yep, that's right, that's right. Um, and also, but there's I, more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Um, there's actually, a ton, but as usual, there's a bunch of stuff in the in the Fedora twenty release. But I did want to highlight the uh, the use of the uh, FedUp tool. 
Mm -hmm. um, which is the Fedora updater. So for the first time, uh, frankly, uh, I've successfully moved from Fedora 19 to Fedora 20 by just doing basically running the FedUp tool. Um, And it went and downloaded all the packages, did all the updates. I rebooted, and as if by magic, everything was working. Mm. Um, So that is... Maybe I'm an outlier, but this has never happened to me before. <laughs> well, and I'm sure I'm sure that you know it's been rocky over the years, but now that that is a proposed feature or a goal for RHEL seven, um, mm-hmm. hopefully it's you know shaping up on Fedora first. Um, <laughs> right. So yeah, yeah, that's very cool. Um, and then Dave, I know you share my my frustration with people who are like, the operating system is dead. We don't need operating systems anymore. We just virtualize everything and then put our applications right on it, right on the middle. We don't need operating systems. Right. Um, so here's why you need operating systems. is because like within hours of Fedora 20 releasing with support for ARM, um, they actually were able to move OpenShift or port OpenShift over to ARM. So now you can run OpenShift on an ARM server, which is super cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and of course, this is what operating systems allow you to do is it makes it really easy to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, uh, thanks to Max, uh, who did the port, we'll include a link to the port in the, in the show notes. Um, so Dave, why would somebody want to run OpenShift on an ARM machine instead of an x86 machine? Well, density, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah that's right. So you, you see all those, uh, like HP has their project moonshot, which is mm-hmm. like a, basically a drawer of a whole bunch of whether it's atom processors or which are x86 based or arm based processors um instead of virtualizing and having a virtual machine um which is pretty heavyweight um you could um have a openshift node that would be running linux um running openshift and it could be running multiple containers and you don't even even though you could do uh virtualization on arm uh, you don't have to if you're using uh, the container technology that we talked about in the uh, the last episode with Dan Walsh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Um, and also, I was thinking about the ability to run OpenShift on ARM and x86 simultaneously. So mm-hmm. you'd actually have a pool of ARM-based OpenShift nodes and a pool mm-hmm. of x86-based OpenShift nodes. And then, depending on the kind of work you wanted to do, um, right, because maybe you just need, like, horsepower, maybe you need you know, something kind of low power, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, high, very dense. Um, and you could actually choose between the two, um, yep. and still have them all running in the same, basically in the same open shift installation, uh, which would be pretty sweet. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Oh, I wanted to thank Dan Reisacker. Yes. Dave. Uh, so, so, you know, in our tireless pursuit of legitimacy for Helixson's law, mm-hmm. which as we all know, states that, any open source policy can be improved by removing the words open source. Mm-hmm. Um, Dan actually took the, the rule, um, did me the favor of actually generalizing it and making it sound a lot more academic and formal. Um, mm-hmm. And then he applied the rule to the DOD open source policy. Nice. And kind of, and kind of like graded himself on it, which I thought was really cool. It was great. Um, and extremely citable for, uh, for Wikipedia. So uh, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Matt Mycenae, this is your, this is your, this is your, this is your chance. <laughs> um, review the call. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thanks, Dan. I'm, I'm actually extremely flattered that the author of the DOD open source memo uh, would uh, bring his considerable mental powers to bear uh, on my goofy little law. Um, so thanks, Dan. Yeah. We, you need to get his uh, tank top size. Yes. 
Yes, Dan, your <laughs> Dan, your extra small Helix and Slaw T-shirt is is uh, is in the mail. <laughs> um, cool. So, speaking of laws, uh, Dave, you're familiar with uh, Betteridge's law? No, not until I saw the link uh, here. What what is that? So good. Uh, so this, you know, this goofy kind of hokey formulation um, that headline writers will use, like, um, is the ARM platform dead or uh, will Adam destroy the x86 platform or uh, what? Like, you know, it, will it, Cloud Foundry destroy OpenShift? Or right? is it is it PaaS or something else? Is it PaaS or something else? Um, the Betteridge's Law says mm-hmm. that any headline that contains a yes or no question, the answer is always no. Hmm. Which is pretty good. And so I discovered this law um, in the commentary around this ridiculous article on Programmable Web. Um, the title is, Is REST Losing Its Flare? Um, and it was a discussion of alternatives to the REST API. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the answer is no. REST is not losing its flare. REST is, a, is an excellent method of <laughs> making APIs available to other people um, and is certainly not being used to the exclusion of any of the other options, including stuff like AMQP and um, even like stuff like Tibco and whatever. Um, it's just like, it, it was just a ridiculous article. Um, but I was, anyway, I was very happy to, to, to actually have a name for mm-hmm. this, this, uh, a name for this behavior. It was pretty good. So, so now when you see in your RSS feed an article for, with a yes, no question, do you just say no and then move on to the next article or yeah, it saves, it saves me a ton of time. It yeah. saves me a ton of time. Yeah, that's right. Um, let's see what else we got here. Oh, uh, Robin sent over a link to uh, both WebRTC and Echoplex. Okay. Um, so, so WebRTC is this standard for doing uh, peer-to-peer communication, basically in your browser. Hmm. Um, wow. So, yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. So, if I, if you and I wanted to chat, or if mm-hmm. we wanted to run an Etherpad or whatever, right mm-hmm. now the Etherpad that we're staring at actually lives on a third server, right? Not on your laptop, not on my laptop, it lives on a a third server. Um, And all the communication that you and I do with each other is actually mediated by that, by that server. Right. Mm -hmm. And almost, almost every application that we use behaves in this way. WebRTC is a standard and a feature that's built into modern browsers that would allow you and I to directly communicate browser to browser. Mm. So obvious applications of this include audio and video, Mm-hmm. Right, which is, I think, what it was originally designed for. But the designers of the standard were smart enough to also include a data channel in it. Mm. So now that I can have a, a, a me to direct me to Dave connection with a data channel on it, that means that we can do stuff like chat. Mm-hmm. Um, we can trade files. Um, there is even, and uh, Echoplex is uh, kind of a, a collaboration system built up around this WebRTC standard, which is really, really cool. Um, and uh, there are even there's even a an implementation of BitTorrent called WebTorrent, which actually mm-hmm. uses WebRTC to share files uh, in a torrent-like way. Wow, it's That's really cool. Yeah. I wonder what that if that would like from a Skype perspective if that would make Skype less useful or if, you know well, things so, like that. Right. Yeah. So the, well, this is exactly why they developed the standard um, mm-hmm. was to create the ability to do these peer-to-peer connections. Now, if you're using Skype for stuff like group chats, I mm-hmm. suspect that it is probably more efficient to have all those video streams going into one guy, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Cause having point to point, having a many to many connection on a group chat would just swamp everyone's bandwidth. I, I expect. Um, but 
uh, certainly for one-to-one communication, this is, this is really clever. This is very yeah. cool. Um, and you, so, well, hmm. how do you do, like, I wonder, like I'm used to doing TLS with where you, you know that you have a, an authenticated SSL connection, right? Uh-huh. Um, how can you do that between peers? Like, how do I know there's nobody listening in the middle or I have a secure connection? That is an excellent question. And I do not know the answer. Yeah. But, uh, but think about that for a second. Like think about how disruptive that could be. Mm-hmm. Um, not only is it a peer to peer connection, um, which means that there's no, there's no man in the middle. There's mm-hmm. nobody, <laughs> there's nobody to interfere with us. Um, it means that we can communicate without anybody else knowing really, um, mm-hmm. unless they're tapping our phones. Um, it means another neat thing about it is, uh, is that it is ad hoc, right? Um, so I don't have to like set up or, or like arrange a session or like create a space on a server uh, in order for us to work together. We could just directly connect to each other. Yeah. How would, would there have to be a central meeting point? Like, like how so would I know is, where you yeah. are? So this is, this is what, this is, I think the service that Echoplex provides. Um, is that they are the ones who are kind of coordinating and kind of mediating the sessions and the discovery process. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh, So cool. This this technology is really interesting to me. Um, Yeah. Especially in light of, you know, our pervasive paranoia. um, Yes. (laughs) About um, when not even our, you know, when our email is being monitored by any number of companies and and government agencies, um, having something like WebRTC under your belt seems pretty handy. Yes. Yeah, that shows a lot of promise. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, let's see here. Oh, tell me about Road Salt. Yeah, yeah. And um, so with all the snow that we're getting and everything, um, I, you know, like in, in Ohio, we do a lot of salt, um, you know, to melt the snow and ice and all that. And whereas in Pennsylvania, as, as I went back to um, uh, for the holiday, um, they use a lot of gravel, I guess, because it's less expensive, which drives me nuts because it's... Uh, Stone chips on my car, chip in the paint, and all that just just kills me. Um, but I saw an article in the New York Times where they're actually using uh, uh, cheese brine. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, and and it actually, I guess it it smells like mozzarella. Um, and mm. so yeah, it would be you need like that and like a pepperoni um, uh, pepperoni truck. Um, but <laughs> but I thought that was pretty neat. Where um, they talk about you know with with the salt, you know, it, it's damages the environment, right? It, it kills mm-hmm. grass and, you know, salts the earth. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and with wildlife and everything, um, whereas with, um, this, uh, cheese brine, um, it could actually, uh, it's less, less of an environmental impact to it and everything. And, um, and it reminded me of something that I saw a, a couple of years ago. I was, it was really bad out. And I was driving around here in Ohio, and there was a, a big truck with a tank on the back, and it was spraying stuff out the back. And I saw along the, the side of the truck, it said beet juice on it. And I'm like... Was it a prank? Well, I, no. It, was, it looked like, a, you know, just like a tank truck, you know, like, uh-huh. a, like a salt truck. But instead, it right. had like a tank that was shooting beet juice out the back of it. And, um, so it's like, I, I did some search around and actually, uh, I guess Ohio was one of the, uh, was leading the way and especially like in the Akron area of, of using beet juice as a supplement to, uh, to help with, uh, uh, melting, uh, melting ice and all that. And it, it you can't use it like a hundred percent. Um, you want to use it with salt, uh, because, um, 
like salt has a can help with lower lower freezing points and all that. But during a certain in a certain temperature range, uh, beet juice works just fine. And the other thing I like about with uh, beet juice and the cheese brine is that it will evaporate. Um, whereas something like salt or especially gravel is really bad when when you think about springtime and motorcycles where right, um, right. In, in, like if you don't ride a motorcycle, you probably don't notice it, but intersections are the most dangerous place to you know where you're most likely to have an accident and you'll notice that intersections are the place where gravel tends to be the most, um, which is kind of strange, but it's it's you know just take it take a notice. And um, and that's very gravel patches are really bad for motorcycles. So any way that you could get like cheese brine or, or beet juice in place, um, I'm a fan. <laughs> that's great. Oh, well, first of all, it sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and separately, uh, yeah. And when you sent this along, I the thing I thought of was, um, you know, I, I did that work in New York um, on uh, sidewalk electrocutions. Mm. And one of the big reasons why people get electrocuted is because of the salt that the city uses. Oh, really? Um, because salt is a conductor. Oh. And so if you've got, uh, you know, some piece of infrastructure like a lamppost and a lamppost has uh, some stray voltage in it, um, that can actually, that voltage can, that energy can actually be conducted over like salty slush mm-hmm. um, over to like a telephone pole. Um, and in fact, that happened to a... Uh, I think it was a middle school teacher, an elementary school teacher. Um, he went to go pick up a payphone, and as soon as he put it to his ear, he was knocked unconscious. Wow! Um, because down the street there was a lamppost which uh, had a you know had all this voltage running through it. It's mm. crazy. Um, so yeah, no anything that uh, can uh, anything that can lower the freezing point uh, of uh, water um, and not conduct electricity, I'm a huge fan of. Yeah, well, I, and but I don't know about if beet juice or Cheese brine is conductive, though, but um, I will. I will. Condu- I will. I will. I'll go back into my laboratory and uh, and conduct some tests. Yeah. Yes. I will. I will return with an answer. Nice. Cool. Uh, wow, Dave, marathon one. This is a. Uh, we got a. We're clocking in here at almost an hour and twenty minutes. Hopefully, it'll be shorter once we do the uh, editing. But, um, what do you say? You want to wrap this up? Yes. Yes. Excellent. Very good. Um, so, Dave, if, uh, if folks want to learn more about uh, beet juice, um, maybe they would like to generate their own uh, threatening North Korean press release um, <laughs> or... <laughs> or, uh, or condemn uh, beet juice um, using a North <laughs> Korean press release. <laughs> That's right. If folks need the tools uh, to do something like that, where, where do they go? Yeah, they want to go to uh, dgshow.org. So it's D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. All right. Sounds good. Well, Happy New Year, Dave. Yeah, Happy New Year.